As has been mentioned already, we are certainly thankful and indeed feel blessed and honored to gather on the first day of the week to appreciate the power far higher than we and to assemble to offer our heartfelt homage and worship unto Him. Our elders have thus, as by way of the announcement this morning, made the announcement that some two weeks from today, so that'll be again two weeks from today, we will look forward to, to meeting in a more regular arrangement of assemblies. Uh, it'll be again at 9.30 on Sunday morning, 10.30 for worship, the Sunday evening worship at 5.30 p.m., and finally the 7 o'clock Wednesday evening Bible study. We are certainly thankful for the opportunity and the freedom that's ours in a country such as this to gather at those times and study the Word of God and encourage each other and, of course, adore the matters of the God of heaven. The lesson this morning may well involve a title that at first sight may well appear somewhat unusual, but probably from the lesson text that Brother Lester read a moment ago, it is in fact a familiar passage, but one that no doubt stirs many questions, and one that in the mind of many people is the source of some amount of conflict and some amount of misunderstanding. In fact, this opening slide will not only develop a few of those ideas briefly, but prepare us to look more thoroughly at the remainder of the lesson. We're all very well aware from the reading of the New Testament gospel accounts especially that demon possession is rather often mentioned in the Word of God. That circumstance in which we so easily read about events wherein the Master or one of the Apostles, or in some cases even others, would in fact have a direct experience with someone possessed with one or more demons. And yet the fact that those occur and the fact that that is so often mentioned by its very nature asks a number of questions. There are many instances today when there's a fair amount of misunderstanding and even a fair amount of false teaching relative to this. If you're familiar with the Pentecostal doctrinal teaching, you're aware that they in fact rather powerfully teach that it is possible today for somebody to be possessed with a demon not unlike those circumstances of which we read in the Bible. But to say it that way is perhaps to ask this. We'd like to know today, does the Bible teach that? Is it possible in essence for an individual such as you or I or someone else to be possessed with demons today? If so, how so? And if not, can we understand how it is the Bible teaches a better understanding of this? It is the case, then, as you close that slide with me, that some of the matters will be developed as we look rather carefully at the lesson text itself. So let's give a few moments, reflection to the context. What is it that surrounds this set of passages? And that is, forms a basis in which the Lord's comments must be understood. It all begins earlier in that chapter with the fact that the Lord, as He often was, was in discussion with Pharisees primarily. And the text will make note of some scribes in addition, but many times throughout the chapter, we are told that either the Lord was addressing Pharisees or that they were asking questions of Him. And I've pointed out to you some of the passages that point that out to us in this very context. But you'll notice in verse number 22, rather abruptly something takes place. They bring a man to Jesus. The text says he was possessed of a devil. 
that's the King James wording that reminds us, this gentleman, as unfortunate as it was, was possessed with a demon. And the consequence of it was this. The man was both blind and mute. He couldn't talk and he couldn't see. Needless to say, a very unfortunate circumstance to be, to be afflicted in a way like that, and it was prompted by the fact he was possessed with a demon. Interestingly enough, as you rather quickly observe, the text is abrupt. It says this, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him. That's all the information we're given. The Lord healed him. Three words. He healed him. The Holy Spirit chose not to elaborate. He didn't choose in this instance to talk a great deal about the specifics. He just says the Lord healed him. Now you and I realize what that means is the Lord cast that demon out of him. And so the verse ends like this. Inasmuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? The audience, the crowd, if you please, that observed this, the former and latter states of this man, they immediately identified, Is it this who did this, the son of David? Now, that was a high compliment. Remember, the Jews looked up to, G looked up to David very notably. He was, in fact, one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. And the people adored him. And the Pharisees didn't like it a bit. That here was a crowd of people heaping on Jesus, this son of David. They respected him. They spoke very highly of him. And so verse 24 reads it like this. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. It would seem that these Pharisees were overcome with jealousy. They were overcome with an element and their pride was hurt. They wanted to have the adoration of the people. They wanted to have, you see, the respect and the words of commendation. And here the crowd was giving it to Jesus. And they responded, This fellow does not cast out devils except by Beelzebub. That word Beelzebub, is a word that literally means the Lord of the Flies. It came, in essence, from the Philistine deity. And as they were thus making that statement about the Master, in essence, they connected His power to cast out demons to none other than the devil himself. For that reason, on that slide that's before you, they had here made a claim. So they made the claim, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the devil. At that point, beginning in verse number 25, the Lord launched into a powerful refutation of what they said. He crushed their argument. If I may paraphrase it, it went something like this. Jesus said, you say that I'm casting out de demons by the power of the devil. But if the devil can get into a person's life, and yet I, by the power of the devil, by the same power, are casting him out, don't you know... A kingdom divided against itself shall not stand. A house, you see, that is divided that way is not stable. You see, Jesus argued, I can't be casting out the devil by the power of the devil. What sense does that make? No wonder as that conclusion 
ended, Jesus said, but if by the finger of God I'm casting out demons, then the power of God, the kingdom of God has come to you. Jesus, you see, connected this not to the devil in terms of casting out these demons, but He attached it to the power of God. He attached it to one more powerful than the devil. As you go a bit forward on this slide, you'll notice that the discussion then moved in perhaps a natural direction. Who is greater, God or the devil? If Christ is able to forcibly cast out the devil, that means Christ is greater than the devil. He's more powerful. And in Luke's account, as well as in Mark's, that presentation is highlighted very strongly. Jesus said, when the strong man has come, we understand what in fact can happen. When a thief will in fact arrive at the time and place of the strong man. But when a stronger than the strong man is here, Jesus referred to the devil as the strong man. But He said, one stronger than the strong man is here. Jesus, you see, had the power to cast out demons. He had the power, you see, to overwhelm these circumstances just as He had done casting out this demon that had caused this man to be both, both mute and blind. It is with that said. You'll notice they then quickly ask the Lord another question in part, developed from this same idea. May I direct your attention to verse 38 of the same chapter? Master, we would see a sign from thee. So the Lord had just cast out this demon, as powerful and as notable as that was, and they had the nerve to ask him for a sign. Hadn't they seen enough? Hadn't they seen already what he was capable of doing? And now they have the audacity. Master, we need to see a sign. The Lord rather quickly put it like this, No sign shall be given to this wicked and adulterous generation. Our Lord got to the point. He, in fact, said it very sternly. There's going to be no sign given. And in fact, He described a circumstance. Do you remember Jonah? He was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And he said, So too shall the Son of Man, referring to himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the only sign you're going to have. And he, of course, was speaking about that set of events following his crucifixion, wherein he, in fact, remained in the tomb for that length of time. But by the power of God, Romans 1 verse 4, he came forth. Jesus then said this, When it comes to the matter of Jonah... Do you not realize a greater than Jonah is here? The people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, but one greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. And then in the next verse, he made reference to that queen of Sheba who came from such a far distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But then Jesus quickly observed, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is greater than Solomon. He's greater than Jonah. And it was in that context that it brings us to verse 43 of Matthew chapter 12. And though we heard this a moment ago with that background setting the stage, let me read it again. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, 
I will return into my house from whence I came out. Then when he is come, he findeth it swept, empty, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. The Lord then asserted, just as he had talked about the time of the queen of Sheba and also of Jonah, now he says, the unclean spirit. Now remember, he had just said, a greater than Solomon and a greater than Jonah is here and now. Who has the power to cast out unclean spirits? We already know the answer. The Lord had just done it back in verse 22. No wonder then, several observations... Several conclusions perhaps are in order, and let's in fact step through these and use them to teach ourselves some useful lessons about this set of events. First of all, demon possession. It was real. There are occasions, even today, when you will hear rioters making reference to this as if it was merely a disease, it was an epileptic seizure. It was some other kind of medical malady. In other words, they say it was not really the willful possession by the power of hell overwhelming a person. But now that's not right. Demon possession was real. It was a circumstance wherein one or more unclean spirits, demons if you will, would forcibly enter into a person and against that person's will, abide in that person's body. And as we've already learned, there were some very serious consequences at times. It could result in blindness. It could result in being un unable to speak. We read in Mark chapter 9 of an instance in which it would lead to foaming at the mouth. It would lead to grinding of the teeth. It would lead to, in fact, a person being willfully thrown down sometimes into the water or into the fire. It was very serious. But as you and I would quickly observe, again, the New Testament highlights very powerfully that it was real. I would be perhaps quick to point out that, again, those today who would assert that it's not, perhaps overlook verses such as these. May I ask you to notice Mark, Matthew chapter 4, just a moment? In this particular chapter, the indwelling of a demon is distinguished from sickness. In other words, it was not the same thing. Let me read verse 24 of Matthew chapter 4. And his fame, that's the fame of Christ, went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people. Notice, here's a reference to sick people that were taken with divers diseases, and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. Possession by demon, notice, is distinguished from sicknesses. It's even distinguished from epilepsy, which is also mentioned in that passage. It was not the same thing. Not only that, in Matthew chapter 10... You may note verse 8 with me in that chapter, wherein the Lord was in fact addressing His apostles and providing them instructions relative to the limited commission. As they went out, you'll notice they were told to heal the sick, 
But separate and apart from that, they were told to cast out unclean spirits. One more time, the Holy Spirit has distinguished these. It is not as if demon possession was just a mere kind of disease of some form. It was a real event. Not only that, you might ask, who could be afflicted with this? In this chapter, we've noticed a man was afflicted with it. Several times we find women were afflicted by being possessed with unclean spirits. You may recall Mary Magdalene was affected with this. Sometimes it would seem even those that were younger were afflicted with it. You may recall that there was one time a woman came and said, My daughter is such that she has an unclean spirit. The text doesn't tell us how old the girl was. It could be she was somewhat on the younger side by the particular assessment you and I would make. But at the very least, we notice again a far-reaching matter. Perhaps this is even more astounding. You and I have a number of records in which more than one unclean spirit indwell the same person. Do you recall that scene in Mark chapter 5? This perhaps is the first one that comes to mind. This gentleman was in a very dire strait indeed. He lived among the tombs. He, in fact, had superhuman strength. They would bind him with chains and he could break them. He would cut himself, causing blood to come forth, and he would cry day and night. What an awful way to live. And yet, when he saw Jesus, he came unto him, and he made confession to him. The Lord cast out legion. Do you recall that's the name that this unclean set of spirits gave themselves? We are legion. Isn't that amazing? All of that brings us to close that slide like this. Demon possession is real. But now what else might we quickly observe? The Lord leads us to observe this rather quickly. This was of the devil. I noticed it with you a moment ago, and perhaps you observed it as well. These Pharisees, that in this instance they came to Jesus, and they said, He cast out by the power of Beelzebub. In the verses that follow, Jesus is the one that said, If Satan cast out Satan... Apparently, the indwelling thrust and force was due to Satan. Jesus said so. It was the devil behind this. He was the one that provided the capability, if you please, of making this a reality. Now, that, of course, leads one to ponder many things. The devil, forcibly and against a person's will, sending an unclean spirit into this person and causing this kind of difficulty... That's the way in which this demon possession worked. Maybe it is in that light. You and I would quickly note how terrible this must have been. The devil doesn't do anything good for the human family. He's our enemy, 1 Peter 5, 8. And yet, he had the capability, at least at this time, of demon possession. One last set of things on that slide then would be this. I call to your attention Mark 7, verses 25 and following. Now, you and I know today that certain illnesses are things that we recognize by our own experience and by the skillful considerations of medical professionals and others. Certain things are known 
A person has diabetes, for example, you could be diagnosed and you recognize what its symptoms are. I would point out to you that though demon possession was not a disease, it was something that had characteristics that people learned to recognize. Like that father that again said, my son has an unclean spirit. The father didn't say he's an epileptic. He didn't say he's some other kind of lunatic. The father knew what he had. And that mother, like I mentioned earlier, she knew her daughter had this. It was something they knew how to recognize. No wonder as that slide ends, you might appreciate something rather interesting that when the Lord did cast out those one or more demons out of a person, it often happened in a violent way. Not always, apparently, but at least sometimes. And that account in Mark chapter 1, when that demon was forcibly taken out by the power of Jesus, the text says, it tore him. Did the man fall down into something like a seizure? Did his body go into convulsions? It would seem the word indicates something along that line. At the very least, this real effect was of the devil. What about lesson number three? And this one, it would seem, is very serious and also very important. What about the timing of this? I'm sure that you and I would open the Word of God and be impressed by it. We quickly observe the following. There were 39 books in the Bible that preceded the book of Matthew. Those Old Testament books from Genesis to the book of Malachi. And yet, as you and I study them, we find not one clear case of demon possession. Not one. Now, you might be quick to say, but was it Saul such that he had an evil spirit in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and following? But that wasn't the same. Notice that Saul allowed his jealousy in light of David to reach the point he wanted to kill David. It's not that Saul had demon possession. Or you and I might remember other instances in the Old Testament where someone was moved to act in a way displeasing to God, but it wasn't demon possession. I've asked you to appreciate a couple of examples. We know the devil was active in the Old Testament. Isn't it true in the book of Job? Think about what he brought into Job's life. Job lost his possessions. Job even lost his children. And the devil was the one that was behind it. But the devil didn't possess Job with a demon. He did not, in fact, operate in that kind of way. In 1 Samuel 21, we remember that David was moved to number the people of Israel. Now, Satan was behind it. Satan was behind him making a bad choice. But Satan didn't possess him with a demon. We have not one example in the Old Testament, not one clear example of demon possession, but suddenly as we turn the page into the New Testament, it's frequent. The first chapter in Mark, we have a record of a demon possession, Mark 1.26. Chapter 4 in the book of Matthew, demon possession. Doesn't that perhaps alone help us to appreciate something? The nature of the God of heaven made demon possession a reality at a particular time in human history. And it was the time coinciding with the coming of the Christ. It's as if... 
God wished the human family to see my son, the Messiah, has the power over the devil. He can cast out these demons, and hence Satan had the capability to possess with demons at that time, but the Lord was easily capable to cast them out, to overwhelm them, and at His will they responded. In fact, do you remember some of the confessions that the demons made? These are startling. I recall that particular case when you might remember that the Lord ultimately cast out these demons into a herd of swine. They ran down the hill and drowned themselves, but right prior to that, the demons speaking to the Lord said, What have we to do with thee, thou Son of God? Art thou come to torment us before the time? They knew exactly who He was, and they knew what power He had, and they knew of what He was capable and they knew that they were no match for Him. Their confessions highlighted that very truth. And yet, you and I appreciate, it was a very clear set of examples then when people could see. They knew that individuals were possessed with demons, but they could see Jesus cast them out. And they could see His power manifested that way. On that slide, then, I wrote it that way. This was permitted during that time in order to emphasize and authenticate the power of Jesus, the reality of who He was, where He had come from, and whose power He had. Now with that said, you'll notice that so powerful was Jesus in this regard, He could even give His apostles power to cast out demons. He did it in Matthew chapter 10. He sent them out to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and to them He said, You cast out demons. And they did it. The Lord could even give them that power. But might you and I remember, He didn't give that to every follower of His. It's not that He gave that simply to every person that would be His follower. The power to cast out demons. Do you recall then that in that light, as some who had returned from their mission, they came back and they said, We have beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. They had power to cast out the demons as well. Maybe one final thing then would be this, putting those matters together. We learned demon possession was not a part of the Old Testament. And if it was here at a time wherein to emphasize the power of Christ, we wouldn't expect that power to have continued in the days following Him, at least extensively. And so today there is no demon possession like there was then, because there, Christ is not on earth like He was then. And His apostles are not alive today. There are no living apostles today. The qualifications mentioned in Acts chapter 1 that you had to meet to be an apostle. No human being on earth today can meet those qualifications. There are no apostles. Now, interestingly enough, the Old Testament had prophesied that demon possession was not going to be age-lasting. The prophet Zechariah said it like this. In Zechariah 13 verse 2, again, in the Old Testament era, God, looking down the stream of time, said that there is coming a time when the prophet shall pass away. There'd be no more prophecy like there was then. And in that same verse, He said, The unclean spirit shall pass out of the land. 
Doesn't that indicate that at the time supernatural prophecy would end, so too would the capacity of demon possession. Now you and I know Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 about the fact that prophecy was going to come to an end. He said, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. There are no supernatural prophets today. And so too there is no demon possession. And so individuals who find themselves troubled by that today have misappreciated some of the teachings of the Word of God. That was for a particular time to emphasize the power of the Christ and to emphasize that one greater than the devil is here. But Jesus has ascended back to heaven and the perfect Word of God has been given to one and all today. Isn't it true that the Bible itself testifies that all things that pertain to life and godliness are here. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Not only that, you and I remember that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God in the words of 2 Timothy 3 verse 15 and 16. Having said all of that though, that is not to say there isn't a rather powerful set of lessons in it even for us today. Not as if there's actual demon possession, but interesting lessons that can be very beneficial to us. Let's, in fact, develop these very briefly in the following way. Do you remember that the very context of the passage, Jesus said, when the unclean spirit is cast out of a man, he walks through dry places. But then he finds his house wherein he had dwelt, swept, empty, and garnished. And then he enters back in with seven wicked spirits more wicked than himself. And the latter end is worse than the first. Now those were the words of Jesus. What did he mean by all of that, at least in a way that can be helpful to us today? If it's not possible for there to be literal demon possession as there was then, what might be in that that's good for us to note? Very quickly, isn't it this? Did you notice that as this unclean spirit was cast out, only the master could do that. But as this unclean spirit walked through dry places, that's a reference to these places without, those places not in where he had been before. But then he found his former dwelling place empty, swept, and garnished. How does the devil attack you and me today? If he can't literally possess us with demons like he did then, how does he do it? James 1 verses 14 and 15 describe it like this. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. He preys upon our lusts by appeal, by temptation, by encouragement with regard to playing upon the lusts of our, of our life, those appetites of our flesh. Now, the devil can't make us succumb to any of them, but he can make them look alluring. He can make it look very inviting, and he leaves us to make the decision to follow it. But you'll notice... Then he could directly possess with demons. Today he comes before us enticing us. And when we give in to it, we then have chosen to follow the devil. 
Now, what follows? That means that separates us from God. It brings these very unwholesome things into our life. We hurt those that we love. We separate ourselves from them by saying and doing things we shouldn't. We fail to do things that we should. And all of that's prompted again because we've chosen to follow the devil. Suppose the time comes we realize that state of affairs and we start making amends. The Bible calls that repentance. We have a change of mind that results in a change in action. But question, if I have removed these evil things from my thinking and from my life, what have I replaced it with? Have I replaced it with something good, something wholesome, something biblical, something scriptural? If you and I, as we repent, don't fill that void in life with something wholesome and good, that idleness will soon be a worse condition than I was in before. The devil's not going to leave that void place. He will allure and he will again come back to you and me. And often I may find myself lapsing back into a sin, either exactly like or worse than the one I was in before. We have to take then a, the initiative. When we made that repentance, may we work with fervor to fill our life with what's positive and good and that which is of God. No wonder Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1.11, you are full of the Holy Spirit. They had filled their life with things of God. When you and I make those choices of change in life, are we doing that? We can rest assured the devil won't leave a void place there long. He will again strive to fill that with something as bad or worse than like it was before. Not unlike what we read here, though it's not literally demon possession. Isn't it true Jesus closed that discussion by saying, Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. That is, there were lessons in it that they needed to know, just as there are lessons in this circumstance for us to note today. That slide closes then by urging all of us, and could I draw your attention to these three verses? Give no place to the devil. Now you'll notice, don't give him even a square inch. If you and I portray our life as a square mile, don't give him any of that territory. Because the reason is evident. If you give him a little, he will begin to work and soon he will have found a way to encourage the taking of a lot more than what was originally given to him. So it is that he then could forcibly possess with demons today, though he doesn't do that. He is very active and clever, and he makes attacks upon your life and mine. Aren't we thankful for verses like this one? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, if we resist him using this power, it is no match for the devil. The devil cannot defeat this. He has never been able to, and he now never shall. No wonder then we need a dosage of the Word of God and to appreciate that through Christ we have power greater than, greater than the devil. And with that said, let's close our lesson today. Reentrance of a pack of demons. That's the title I gave to the lesson. 
But as we've learned, there were great truths in that for the people of that day attached to the power of the Christ. Today, there is no demon possession like there was then. Perhaps we're very thankful for that. But could I suggest the devil makes attacks on us in many ways more cleverly than he did then. He could directly enter the lives of people back then. Now he must be more subtle. He tempts. He encourages. He cajoles us away from God. May we be wise. And may we not allow him success in that regard. Today, as you and I reflect upon our life, where do you and I stand? Are we safely in the confines of the power of Jesus Christ? Or have we begun to make choices wherein the devil has given some leeway in our life? We've begun to think in ways, act in ways, talk in ways that are far more consistent with the devil than with Jesus. If that be true, you and I need to repent. We need to change, and we need to fill that void in life that is left in light of the repentance with the fullness of the Word of God and the fullness of serving Him faithfully. If there's anyone in this audience today that would be in that position, we'd like to offer an invitation to encourage you. And we would love to, in fact, pray upon your behalf as a wayward child of God. If you'll repent and confess those errors, Jesus has promised to forgive. If you've never become a Christian, though, you're already right where the devil wants you. He wants you to live and die the way you are right now. He never wants you to obey the gospel. Because he knows you're lost, I hope you know it too. If you've reached an age of knowing wrong from right, and you know the Lord died for you, and you know that you're separated from the God of heaven, why not do something about it? Jesus took your place on the cross that you can go to heaven, but He lets you make the final decision. And if you would like to be saved, you need to believe in Him, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And today, if we could assist in that regard, we'd love to do that. This song of encouragement has been chosen. We'd like to invite anyone to come if you would wish, while together we stand and while we sing.